Okay, let's let's pray. Our great and heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for who you are. We thank you for this class that we have to, to be able to better study your word through a literal uh, hermeneutic. We thank you for each of the students and for Dr. Ray as he teaches us these basic uh, processes and truths of exegeting the word. So, Father, we thank you and praise you for this class. We pray that you will bless this time, that we will glorify you with what we learn as we apply it, and then uh, take it out into our families, friends, and uh, workplaces uh, to better uh, understand what you have revealed to us and to share the gospel, the words of life, uh, to those who need to hear it. We ask your blessing upon our time this evening as we are uh, nearing completion of the course. We pray that you will bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mark. Well, today we got some hermeneutics to deal with. We completed our exegetical portion last week, and today and the rest of the course, we'll go back to hermeneutics. And some of the things that uh, we skipped over, I gave you a real brief overview on the history of hermeneutics. That's the first thing we'll do today. Get into uh, a little bit of the detail there. And also, now that you know what the grammatical, historical, contextual approach is all about, you'll be able to better understand the different approaches. So we're going to take a look at different approaches, and then we'll end our time looking at uh, special hermeneutics. So that's kind of the broad plan, still dealing with the science and art of interpretation. So today we'll deal with with the history. <clears throat> First thing that uh, we want to talk about is I want to give you a little bit of an introduction to the whole study, and then uh, go through the different periods of church history. I've laid this out according to kind of a general church history plan. If you study church history, this is kind of a brief outline of the different periods that you'll look at in church history, and we'll go through the periods in terms of hermeneutics touching on some of the broad strokes of church history itself. In fact, we'll go even a little bit before the founding of the church. We'll go into a Jewish period as well. Today, uh, the church is very different. Hermeneutics in some ways, is very different from what it was like in the early days. And yet, some of the principles that we exercise today actually go even before the early days of the church. And we can see some of that even in the Old Testament period. So, 
Let me just kind of stress a little bit of why this is important in hermeneutics. Certainly you can read about it, but in order to have a complete course, this is one of the things that we want to touch on at least. And if you're more interested in it, there's lots of books that are available that can give you more detail. So I'm going to give you kind of a quick overview, and I, I'm using this illustration here. This is the major intersection of two interstate highways in Albuquerque. And uh, several years ago, they totally redid this interchange. can't remember. I think it was like a quarter of a billion dollars to redo it. It was an existing interchange for the two two uh, interstate highways that met somewhat in the center part of Albuquerque. So some of the streets and bridges were shut down. One of the bridges that was very close to what's called the Big Eye here in Albuquerque, they shut it down, put up all the signing, did everything that they needed to rebuild and to actually build a new bridge that was going to be put in the same location, except it was conflicting with other structures, other building, or other uh, parts of the, the interchange. But all the signs, all of the detours, everything else were to no avail. I remember passing by one day, and I noticed uh, that there was a bridge at the bottom, or a, a car at the bottom of what at one time was a bridge crossing this main highway very close to the interchange here. And I, I had seen, because I have been by that area several times, and I'd noticed extensive signing, and not only signing, but they built these berms across the road. So you had to actually make some effort to get around all of the signing and all of the barricades that they had put up. And yet somebody, probably somebody drunk, drove off what used to be a bridge and ended up down, oh, I don't know, 30 feet below the surface there. Well, it's kind of an illustration of what can happen in traffic situations if you ignore signs and barricades and warnings. And in some ways, church history, and particularly the history of hermeneutics, serves in a lot of ways like signposts. Some of the things that uh, we'll look at and have looked at are as a result of mistakes that were made historically. In other words, in the 21st century, we have a more refined hermeneutic than uh, even the early church fathers that were closer even to the first century because we've learned some things and heeded some warnings. But you still have the potential today to uh, avoid those warnings and some of the things that you can avoid is just the, the history of the development of not only hermeneutics but church history in other areas as well. So, church history serves to warn us concerning faulty hermeneutics. The church got, has gone through several stages where 
at least conservatives have abandoned many of those faulty hermeneutics. But you still see, to some extent, some of that persisting today, so people ignore them. And I think as a result, it's not that you're going to run off off of a bridge, but spiritually you may run into a, a ditch or maybe even worse than that. So history serves to warn us concerning the things that we need to avoid in every area of church history, but also particularly areas of interpretation. It can also give us directions, just like signs point in a direction. In other words, there's a curve ahead or make a right turn or speed limit signs give us directions to help us stay on course. So also church history leaves behind a record of some of those directions, some of those corrections that the church made. And if we heed some of the uh, warnings of the the past, we can avoid some of the problems in our period of time as well. And you can attribute some of the problems that you do see in some churches, some denominations, some individuals, as a result of faulty hermeneutics. They've all been tried before, and obviously some of them are faulty. So there's warnings there, there's directions there, and there's also what we might describe as information signs. And church history serves to inform us as well, not only concerning the details of the history, but particularly the elements of hermeneutics and how they work and how they developed and sometimes understanding a little bit of the development of some of the principles that we've already looked at, uh, we gain insight as to why they were necessary and why they have come about and why we study them today. Santiana says the following, he who doesn't learn from history is bound to repeat it, And sadly, in our culture today, a lot of people are repeating some of the faulty hermeneutics that the church overall has abandoned and has uh, emphasized uh, some of the weaknesses and dangers of those hermeneutics. So that's kind of the purpose of this part of our study when we're looking at history Gave you that brief overview, and that overview begins in the Jewish time frame. We could even go back even before 460 BC. But in general, that's the period of time that historians attribute to not the beginning of the Jewish history, but the beginning of Jewish hermeneutics. At least we have writings from that period of time or copies of writings that have been studied over the ages. Some of those writings that occurred before Christ, there's hints in the New Testament that, for example, Paul was aware of some of these writings, and more than likely our Lord Jesus Christ was aware also of some of those writings as well during this period of Jewish hermeneutics. And you'll notice also that uh, the Jewish period overlaps some of the church age because even though 
The church was founded. We still have those that rejected Christianity and the traditions of the Jewish people. So hermeneutics and interpretation continued for at least another 500 years after after the time of Christ and the early church. So the Jewish period is assigned about 460, and obviously there's not something that just drastically happened there, but approximately 460 to about 550 A.D. So let's take a look at that period of time, first of all, and then we'll progress through the different periods of church church history. During the church or the uh, Jewish period, we have the beginnings and you have even mention of hermeneutics in the Bible, or at least you can uh, understand that hermeneutics were applied And you can even go all the way back to some of the very first writings, like the book of Deuteronomy, for example. And I'd like to just read one passage out of Deuteronomy, and then we'll skip to another passage much later towards the end of Jewish history during the period of uh, the return after the destruction of... um, the nation of Israel, and then they return under Ezra and Nehemiah. So I'll come back to that passage. But in Deuteronomy, we could conclude from the last chapter, chapter 34, where we have the record of Moses' death. Now, there's no indication in the text that Moses wrote that. More than likely, it was written by an editor or an interpreter or or a, a Jewish leader of some sort that is not identified, but in the record it says, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, he capitalized the Lord. He buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no man knows his burial place to this day. So we have the record of Moses' death. Then skip down verse 9. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom. So we have the transition to the new leader. And then it comments, for Moses had laid his hands on him, referring to Moses in the third person there, and the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. And then the book concludes here, and more than likely, it's probably likely that someone added to the book of Deuteronomy, obviously we would attribute the whole book, perhaps except this small portion, to Moses himself. So verse 10, since then, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face for all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants, and all his land, and for all the mighty power and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. And that's where the book of Deuteronomy ends. The point I'm making here is more than likely some editor, some uh, later writer after Moses, or perhaps at the same time frame as the end of Moses' life, probably put together, it's not clear how many of the last verses of the, the passage But it's not likely, we don't have an indication anywhere that Moses composed that part. 
So we have at least editorial work, which in a way is commentary, you might say, is interpretation on the scene, on the spot, which hints at later on in other writings. We, we, we see other writings. Now, this is an inspired writing. We would say that this is part of the inspired text. So we have an inspired writer here that probably added to Deuteronomy, and some of the other books have editorial notes, something like that, uh, referring to later a later time frame after the events had taken place. So you could even say as early as Deuteronomy, there was a need for people to add to the text, in this case under inspiration, and in some sense you could view this as something like a commentary. Now more clearly, so you would expect, obviously, from the time of Moses, there was probably people that obviously studied because of the commands to understand and study God's word and the writings of Moses and the law. Uh, Jewish people are known for their devotion to the law, so it took interpretation, particularly as time passed by and people would no longer, for example, remember perhaps the time frame of Moses later on And one of those occasions is late in the history where we have a clear indication in Nehemiah and Nehemiah chapter 8. This is during the return to the land of Israel after the exile of the nation of Israel. And in Nehemiah, if you remember, the Jews returned back to the land in stages, different waves of in groups. The group that came under Zerubbabel, with Zerubbabel, and Ezra, and then later Nehemiah. And in these time, these different stages of these time frames here, we have different things going on in establishing the nation. And, and one of the restorations is a restoring back to the Hebrew scriptures. But if you remember in that time frame, the Jewish people obviously had spent an entire generation and more in Babylon. They had lost their language. Most of them could not speak Hebrew. It was only some of the scholars and some of the leaders that would have maintained a familiarity with the language. Most of the Jewish people during this period of time spoke Aramaic. So they had lost their Hebrew. But in uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. Now this is in Jerusalem. And they asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given Israel. Then Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of men, and all, all all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. So we have a gathering of the newly established, you might even call it nation of Israel, after the return. This is dated probably somewhere around 444. And they gather to hear the law of Moses. 
Now, skip down to verse 7. Then Ezra blessed, or 6 rather, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, by lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then it gives us a list of uh, the Levites. And if you skip to the end of verse 7, the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. We have a mention of exposition by the Levites. But verse 8, notice what it says. And they read from the book, from the law of God. So what did they do? They read. What did they read? They read Hebrew. They read the text in the Hebrew language. Because it goes on and translated. It's part of the exegetical process is to translate into the contemporary language. So they had to translate from the Hebrew text into the language that the people understood, which at that time was Aramaic. So we have translation going on. And notice it says to give the sense. What is that? That's interpretation. So they're reading the original text. They're translating into the contemporary language. And now they are interpreting so that they understood the reading. So they did interpretation and it also resulted in exposition or at least the reading of the text. But it seems that it was more than just the reading in that they gave explanation such that the people would understand it. So this is one of the first mentions of the exegetical process in all of Scripture. And we know that this is confirmed that the Jewish people were exegetes throughout their history. Here's a clear example in the biblical text itself. Now, the reason we know that they were exegetes is because of the the literature that is available outside of uh, the biblical text. And most of that is commentary on the biblical text. So Nehemiah 8, we have a translation of the biblical text. We have an interpretation of the biblical text that also included an exposition of at least the law of Moses. So that's the early beginnings of Old Testament exegesis and hermeneutics. Now there's a clear period in the Jewish period called the Alexandrian period where several things were done during this period of time. Uh, this is still before the first century. Um, in fact, prior to this Alexandrian Judaism, a couple of hundred years or 150, 170 years before Christ, we had the, the rabbis Hillel and Shammai and some of their writings, or at least the copies that we have available to us, show that uh, both of them were interpreters. Now, they were slightly different. Hillel 
tended to be a little bit more flexible in his interpretation. But he did come up with seven rules. I won't read them to you, but you can find them in some of the history texts. Seven rules that you could consider hermeneutical rules or hermeneutical principles. Unfortunately, some of those rules were flexible enough that some attribute to Hillel as the one that opened the door of interpretation to allegorization. So we see the roots of allegorization, and we'll talk some more about that because it infected the early church as well. But it had an impact on Judaism during that period of time that we call the Alexandrian period of Judaism. So we have Alexandrian Judaism. Later on, we're going to see Alexandrian Christianity as well. So Alexandria was an intellectual center about 200 years before Christ, all the way into the first century period, where many Jewish writers, interpreters, scholars, leaders, uh, lived in the city of Alexandria, Egypt. And at one time, there was a tremendous library there. In fact, one of the major libraries of world history, unfortunately, it was destroyed and we don't have any of the remains of it. So it was a Jewish center, and particularly a Jewish center of Bible scholarship. So during this period of time, Jewish scholars wrestled also with, uh, in fact, the photograph there is of archaeological sites of Alexandria, present day, but this would date back all the way to the period of time that we're talking about. One of the things that the Jewish people, at least scholars of that period of time, they were highly influenced by Greek philosophy, and they had a tendency of integrating this Greek philosophy into their Bible study or Old Testament study. And they were impressed with the Greek allegory, and they noticed that the the Greeks used allegory to resolve some of the conflicts that uh, they had in terms of their Greek gods and their Greek religion. And some of the older writings that preceded, in other words, the Greek philosophers, some of the contradictions that they introduced or some of the conflicts that they had in, in terms of their view of gods, in this period of time, about 200 years before Christ, one of the ways they resolved some of those problems was by allegory. So some of the writers that followed Homer and Hesiod to avoid some of the fanciful conduct and even immoral conduct of the gods, they used allegory to kind of explain away uh, some of those issues. So the... Jews at this time, in fact, this is where Hellenistic Judaism comes from, is the influence of the Greek philosophy and the Greek philosophers that preceded this time frame. We have the influence of Greek culture upon Judaism, and that Judaism produced what we have in the first century. We have... uh, 
Jews that come from this Hellenistic culture and background. And as they observed how the Greeks integrated allegory, they followed suit and they introduced allegory as well. Uh, This is also the period of time because the Jewish people are, in this case, outside the land, and Greek now is the main language rather than Aramaic. The people of the world are learning Greek, so Jews are still separated from their Hebrew language, and most of the Jews in this time frame spoke Greek, so there was a need for a translation of the Hebrew text into the Greek language, and it occurred during this Alexandrian period as well. So the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, came about in this time frame. And as a result of the influence of the philosophers and the Greek culture and the impression of the allegorical way of interpreting literature, it was adopted by many Jewish scholars during this period of time. And they attempted to solve some of the same problems. In other words, when they read in the Old Testament and they saw issues like the incest of Noah and even issues relating to creation, those were hard concepts, particularly in light of their uh, Greek philosophy. But Lot's incest, Noah's drunkenness, the multiple wives of Jacob, uh, the immorality of Judah and Tamar, some of those issues like that, this, to a Jewish mind sensitive to the law and immorality and issues of immorality, it was a, it was an issue that they, uh, were embarrassed by and in some ways thought, well, maybe we can reinterpret and they used allegory to try to explain away some of the problems that that they observed in, in the Old Testament text. So the allegorical method came about relating to the Greek philosophers. They introduced it to avoid immorality of the Greek gods. The Alexandrian Jews used it to harmonize Judaism not only with the Greek philosophers, or not only in terms of the Old Testament, but also with Greek philosophers that they were enamored with. And then, as I mentioned, to solve some of the difficult Old Testament issues. And the list I give you here, Noah's Noah's drunkenness, Lot's incest, Jacob's wives, Judah and Tamar, and some of the other problems or issues that they saw, not only in the book of Genesis, but other places as well. One of the well-known writers, Philo, he was an Alexandrian Jew. He lived from about 20 B.C. to into the first century, the middle of the first century. He is one of the most important allegorizers of that period of time. And you see that he utilized allegory in some of the writings that... Uh, we know of even from today. Now, obviously, we'll talk a, a little bit more about allegory, but uh, the the allegorical approach, very subjective, very arbitrary, in some ways, sometimes even artificial, 
and in fact more closely related to philosophy than biblical concepts. So the Jews introduced an allegorical or a non-literal approach to interpreting the scriptures. So you can probably understand when the early church began to flourish. Now we have influences that uh, can be traced not only to the Greeks, but also to the Jews as well, because this is another problem that we have in the early church, problem of allegorization. Now, there were different segments of Judaism during this time. The Alexandrian group, obviously, they had a devotion to the scriptures, such that they translated the Old Testament. Now, somebody's got their microphone on. I hear some background. You might turn off the microphone. Uh, So there were Alexandrian Jews. They were predominantly Hellenistic or what you you would call them Greek influence. You also had the rise of the Palestinian Jews who were more devoted to the Hebrew scriptures and the Jewish culture rather than the Greek culture. And you had a group of what are called separatists that uh, we have evidence of them from archaeology at a site called Qumran. Some of you have probably heard of it. And some of us have been there. Right, Barb? So Qumran was a village, you might say, of Jewish people. Many of them were very devoted, very religious, I guess you could say, committed to the scriptures, and they were separatist in that they felt like Jerusalem had corrupted itself, the temple was corrupted, so they they abandoned Jerusalem and established their own community. And we owe a great debt to Bible interpretation and particularly translation to this Qumran community because they did not only a lot of writing, they did interpreting. And the main thing they did was they copied the biblical text. And at Qumran, we have archaeological remains of that village Here's a shot of some of the archaeological remains that you can visit and see even today. Another location, or another part of the same location. In the background is the Dead Sea, so it's right on the banks of the Dead Sea. And in ancient times, it was close, this would have been just uh, south of Jericho. In fact, within a bike ride from Jericho, down the hills from Jerusalem, to the right would be west, right of the slide, and on the top of the Judean hills would be Jerusalem. So this group of separatists moved into this village. And like I said, they're famous for the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in several caves. These are the main caves where they found the scrolls, or at least the first jars full of scrolls that have contributed to textual criticism. We've talked a little bit about 
that whole area of textual criticism, they're found in caves like this. Well preserved because of the climate, the dryness of the Dead Sea area reflected in the rocks on the hillside. Just some more shots here. Qumran. To kind of give you a little contrast, uh, this photograph I took in 1977, the first time I visited Israel last century. And uh, last year when I took a group, I don't know if you can see much difference. You see a little bit more erosion of the rock faces if you study the photographs carefully. So 30 years later, or is that, yeah, let's see, 40 years later. Wow, gee, 77 to 17. But there's also caves. I don't know if you can notice towards the top of the slide, several caves on the hillsides. Scrolls have been found in them. See those dark points on the slide there? I can, I can see three of them. One of them stands out better than all the others. But there are other, other caves in this area where they've found other scrolls uh, reconstructing the Old Testament and pushing the whole science of textual criticism over a thousand years prior to any copies that we had up to the time of the discovery in 1947. Another shot of the same site taken last last uh, May when we were there, or let's see, it would have been April. There's a closer shot of one of the caves up on the hillside close to the ledge at the top there. So the Qumran community is important to us for the reason of textual criticism, but it also shows us the different segments of Judaism pre-first century, before the time of Christ. And some of these communities or some of these groups persisted into the first century. Jesus himself dealt with some of them. In fact, some believe that the Essenes were the ones that settled at Qumran, or at least one of the settlements that they had was at Qumran. So, in the first century now, we're still in the Jewish period. Lots of writing, but now tradition becomes more important in terms of interpretation. So, the main types of Jewish exegesis in the time of Christ, there were some literalists during that time that uh, treated the scriptures in a more literal way, but there was also what is called mid- Midrashic interpretation. They expanded and developed the basic rules of Hillel, emphasizing the comparing of biblical texts. But basically, a Midrash is a commentary, so a commentary on the biblical text. Qumran tended to be more literal in some of their commentaries. It's called Peshur interpretation. They borrowed from the Midrashic 
but included more of a focus on uh, Bible prophecy or eschatology. And obviously we've just mentioned that there was the allegorical as well, primarily centered in Alexandria. So that persisted into the, the first century. Now, interestingly, we do have a mention in Acts 8, verse 30, of a believer from a Jewish background that is in, interpreting Isaiah. Remember the Ethiopian in Acts chapter 8? He's reading the text. So in the New Testament, we have a Jewish person. He's converted to Christ, but he's Jewish by background interpreting the Hebrew scriptures to an Ethiopian that has come to uh, worship the one true God. So he's reading the word, doesn't understand, and Philip asks him a question, and he requests an interpretation or guidance in order to understand. So Philip is doing interpretation there. So there were... Other Jews as well during this apostolic period that continued the writings. So there's first century, dependent on tradition as well, the writings that preceded. Now there's a rabbinic period also. This is after the first century and going all the way to about 550 A.D. We have more Midrashic interpretation. The Mishnah, about 200 A.D. is produced. This is biblical material that uh, discusses sometimes topically, sometimes theologically, different passages. So the Mishnah is commentary, basically. We have very zealous, very devoted Jewish interpreters during this rabbinic period. Lots of writing, lots of commentaries. In fact, they even interpreted their interpretation. So you have interpretation upon interpretation. And some of it is good. Some of it is not so good. Some of it is allegorical. Famous interpreter, Rabbi Akiba, he had a very high view of scripture. He saw God as the author, so he believed in inspiration. But he did tend to look for many meanings in the biblical text, which is a subset of allegorization. Two Talmuds were produced. These are interpretations of the Mishnah. So these are interpretations of interpretations. There's a Palestinian Talmud completed about 450 A.D. And then there's the Babylonian Talmud from about 500 to 550, that's where we get the 550 date for this Jewish, the end of the Jewish period. And again, these are interpretations or hermeneutical works. So, the the, uh, the literal interpretation persisted but it tended to be overshadowed by a rigidity somewhat in interpretation, and then on the other end of the spectrum, allegorization during this Jewish period. So that completes the Jewish period of interpretation.
The next period, overlapping the latter part of the Jewish period, we call the patristic period. And usually church history will handle what's called the apostolic period, which deals with the history of the church that's not included in the book of Acts, closer to the apostles. And and then the next era of church history is described as the patristic period. This is the period of the church fathers. And the church fathers are those that followed the the apostolic leadership or the, the apostles. And the date is from about 95. Remember the last writing in the book of Revelation. I date it to 95. Some scholars date it to about 94. But I think 95, the majority of scholars start there. So yeah, I guess you could say with the end of the writing of the New Testament canon, we have the beginning of the patristic period. And that parallels that Jewish period extending a little bit beyond to about 590. Now, all of the rest of these dates would be A.D. dating. So, during the patristic period, you could include the what are called the apostolic fathers. Some of them lived in the first century. And uh, most of them would have died in the second century. So they kind of overlap the apostles, but they're not apostles. They're writers that wrote very close to the time of uh, the writing of the New Testament. Now, some of the general characteristics of this period of time, we have obviously the New Testament canon was completed in this period. But we have both Greek and Latin fathers that interpreted the, particularly the New Testament. And many of them were very careful exegetes. They did careful exegesis. And some of their writings are very good. But it's still early and they're still sorting out certain doctrines. For example, the doctrine of Trinity, the, the Trinity had not been formulated formally yet. So, some of their details of theology had not been totally worked out, but they tended to do uh, fairly good exegetical work. But, you even have the beginnings of allegorization, particularly uh, in the middle of the patristic period. So, we have these apostolic fathers... They had to deal with Jewish people during this period of time and the conflicts with Judaism. And they had to deal with a growing church and a growing understanding of of Scripture that was not fully developed. Some of the church fathers, the early ones, Clement of Rome, who lived in the first century. He used scripture primarily for exhortation and encouragement. Does a lot of quotations from scripture. We have Ignatius that lived at the last part of the first century and into the second century, emphasizing Christology and Christ. 
doesn't quote as much as Clement, but he avoided allegorization. We have an epistle that's written very early called the Epistle Epistle of Barnabas. It has a lot of allegorization in it. And obviously quoting not only the New Testament, but the Old Testament. Justin Martyr would be one of the fathers in this apostolic early period of time. From, I've got a date of birth about 100, so just outside of the first century, living to about 164. Uh, his exegesis is not as good as Clement. In some cases, very faulty. Irenaeus, 130 to 202. Uh, he begins the concept of the church as the authoritative interpreter. And this led later on to the whole concept of tradition in the early church. Tradition of the Roman Catholic Church. But all of these were interpreters and writers and exegetes. And some of their writings we, we even have today. We also have another issue that arose. We have lots of heresy because theology hadn't been worked out. So some of the writings deal with some of the heretical groups, the Gnostics, uh, Marcion and his faulty interpretation. Marcion throughout the scriptures when they disagreed with Jewish ideas, so he would uh, cut and paste, I guess you could say. So that's the apostolic fathers, the early ones. In the middle of the second century to about 400, we have another Alexandrian period, but now this is the Alexandrian period of the church age. So it kind of parallels the Alexandrian Jews that preceded this period of time. The Alexandrian Jews were before the first century, but we have another center in Alexandria of Christianity now. Christianity reached Alexandria, and a lot of scholars resided there. The school of Alexandria was predominantly allegorical. And it did the same thing as what the Jews did. They tried to resolve some of the problems of Scripture, particularly the same Old Testament problems, following the Jewish interpreters by using allegorization as well. Now we have a different Clement. This is Clement of Alexandria from about the middle of the 2nd century, or 155 to about 215. Uh, he believed the scriptures hid meaning, so it took the meditation and the devotion of the interpreter to dig out those hidden meanings. And you can see very clearly, if you're digging for hidden meanings that are not what we would say clear and plain on the surface, utilizing the words of the writer, then you're going to begin to allegorize. So he is considered one of the main allegorizers of this period of time. And then his student, Origen, took it to the next degree. 
But Clement saw any given passage could have as many as five different meanings. Now, some of these we would agree with. For example, he saw a historical sense. And we would say, well, you have to look at the historical background. So it's not too far from what we would say with the grammatical, historical, contextual approach. Where he would see the stories of the Bible as historical events. He also had, within even historical passages, he would find doctrinal meanings where he would draw out moral and theological lessons. Now, we would equate that more with application rather than uh, interpretation or exege- or the uh, prior stages of exegesis. He also saw a prophetic sense. Now, he saw this with virtually every passage. He saw every passage having a prophetic sense and a typological sense. And he also had a philosophical sense where he would bring out these allegories from these historical events or historical persons. He would draw allegories from them uh, leading to, I guess, further lessons. Then his fifth way of finding meaning was the mystical. So we have mysticism early in the church, looking for moral and spiritual truths. So he introduces, now he's not the first allegorizer, but he's one of the main ones in the church fathers. And Origen is probably the most well-known. Now, Unfortunately, Origen was probably the greatest theologian of his day, and he made tremendous contributions to the church. One of the main contributions was in the area of textual criticism. He helped establish the uh, Greek text. He was also very strong in apologetics, and some of his apologetics are very sound and very good. So, he was a good exegete, but he also introduced, or not introduced, but furthered the allegorization of the Old Testament to avoid some of those same problems that we've been talking about. So, he's known for his allegorization, which has left uh, a mark on his legacy, you might say. So, some very good things, but also some very negative things as well. And he saw some of the same problems that some of the Jewish interpreters found, some of those moral problems with Lot, Noah, Jacob, etc. But he also saw a problem with Genesis 1, where we have the sequence of events seem to go contrary to what he thought. For example, the sun coming on the fourth day, and issues like that. So he tended to allegorize Genesis chapter 1. And there were others that interpreted in that time frame, but they're not as important. They're important for other reasons in church history, Eusebius, for example, uh, and others. But in terms of interpretation, Origen stands out in the school of Alexandrian. The counterpart to the Alexandrian school, we already went this way, we already saw these, 
the Alexandrian Jews. Let's see what happened here. Okay. I forgot I had this slide in here. Kind of paralleled what the Jew, Jewish interpreters did. They were influenced by Jew, the Greek philosophers of, as well. The Greek philosophers allegorized. I already showed you that on the slide with the Greeks. We have the Alexandrian Jews that allegorized to harmonize Judaism and Greek philosophy. And now we have the Apostolic Fathers to explain some of the same Old Testament problems. They also had a problem with some of the anthropomorphisms that you find in the Bible and typology. So they started studies in that period, uh, on, in that period of time on these issues as well. And then we have the allegorization of the Alexandrian Christians to avoid the same problems that the Alexandrian Jews. So you see some parallels there. The counterpart to the Alexandrian school is what's called the Antiochian or Antiochene community. This is Antioch where the early church had a mission, obviously, mentioned in the book of Acts. In fact, Church of Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas out. And later on, Paul and others uh, on missionary journeys. So it's that same Antioch. They tended to be more literal. In fact, they're the counterpart to the Alexandrian. So they emphasized a historical grammatical interpretation. And they dealt with figurative language. So much of the hermeneutic that we have studied comes from and has its roots in the school of Antioch rather than from the Alexandrian school. Church father by the name of Lucian is credited with the early work in literal interpretation during this period of time. This is 240. His dates are 240 to 312. And there were others that are noted. Chrysostom came later. He came out of the school of Antioch. Theodoret, later than that even. And others in that time frame. So the Alexandrian school basically kept the church on a proper direction in terms of hermeneutics. We have later church fathers that would still be considered patristic, but later, for example, Jerome, about 331 to 419, he is better known as a translator, but he also was a exegete or an exegete. He interpreted the biblical text. He did some of his writings criticize the allegorical approach, but then, uh, but he never really abandoned it, so he still, in some other writings, he utilized the allegorical approach. But as a translator, he translated the entire Bible and the Apocrypha into the Latin Vulgate. He's credited with 
producing the Latin Vulgate, which became the official Bible of that time. So he was very, very important. We have Augustine from about 354 to 430, mainly a theologian, not so much an interpreter, but to be a theologian, you have to deal with the scriptures, so to that extent, he was a exegete. He kind of was a mixed bag as well in terms of hermeneutics. He knew sound principles as very important, but yet he allegorized extensively. And particularly, he allegorized eschatology in terms of at least the millennial kingdom, and a non-literal millennial kingdom finds its roots in Augustine. And there were others, but Jerome and Augustine are probably the best known during that time frame. We can we can go to the next one. So we have the Jewish period and the patristic period that overlaps. The Middle Ages follow the patristic from about 590 to about the 1500s or the beginning of the 1500s which is the beginning of the next period, which is very important hermeneutically. The Middle Ages, not a lot of interpretation during that period of time. In fact, on a timeline, if you want to put it on a timeline, we have Jewish interpretation that goes into the Old Testament time frame. We have the patristic period that parallels it, as I've been saying. Then we have the Middle Ages, which is a long period of time, almost a thousand years there, almost a millennium. And during the the Middle Ages, we have the allegorical method was prominent. In fact, very dominant, almost to the loss of a grammatical, historical, contextual approach. Now, obviously, it survived, so there were some that did, in fact, interpret literally. During this period of time, we also have tradition began to set in. So there was little Bible interpretation. The more There was more dependence on tradition, so people would uh, seek out the writings, mainly from the patristic period, the things that they felt were settled, that were no longer hermeneutical issues or biblical interpretive issues, and official church positions. So the Middle Ages, in terms of Bible interpretation, was... uh, Small at best. And from the allegorization, they came up with a twofold interpretation. They had a literal or the plain sense, but that was only the surface meaning. You had to seek out other meanings, an allegorical, which deals more with what you believe, what is faith. 
as an example, they they would look at for the city of Jerusalem, the literal, obviously dealt with the historical literal city, but Jerusalem looked at allegorically represented the human soul, so it had kind of a moral component, but it also had or a uh, allegorical component. But it also had a moral component. Uh, how do you respond or how do you act in light of this moral idea? Somewhat analogous to our application. So they called it a moral, uh, moral interpretation or some writers call it a tropological interpretation. And the fourth fold they called anagogical or celestial, what do you hope for, or what do you see in terms of the future, or how do you impose an eschatology upon your allegorization. So, Jerusalem, you have the literal city, and then you have the allegorical city, which is the church, and then you have the moral city, which is the human soul, or the moral interpretation. And then you have the heavenly Jerusalem. That's the anagogical approach. Fourfold. Literal, plain sense, allegorical. What do you believe about that plain interpretation? Tropological, what, what do you do about it? And then the eschatological, what do we hope for in light? Of that interpretation. One of the course texts, Klein, Bloomberg, and Hubbard, Middle Ages was a vast desert so far as biblical interpretation is concerned. It's kind of their summarization of this period of time. Some of the important individuals of this time frame. Probably the most important is the well-known Thomas Aquinas. Which I'll get to in a moment. So the allegorical is prominent. Tradition began to set in. Literal interpretation survives. It's kind of very, very minor during this period of time, but there are some and I'll mention some of them, and scholasticism began. And the best-known scholasticist would be Thomas Aquinas, 1225 to 1274. And he was a theologian, and he utilized a literal sense but he still saw a lot of meaning since God is the author. You would expect further meaning other than just the literal. So we have Aquinas. We have other allegorists, Venerable Bede, Clairvaux, and others. But some of the lesser known but literalists, was a Jew by the name of Rashi, 
and he influenced both Jew and Christian interpreters. There were a group called the Victorines out of an abbey of St. Victor in Paris. They followed uh, Rashi's interpretation, which was literal, and we have some writings that go back to them. John Wycliffe would be in this time frame. He was a literalist. In fact, he precedes the Reformation period and laid some groundwork for the Reformation since he tried to bring the church back, back to the scriptures, emphasizing the authority of the scriptures. He was not only a translator, but he would have also been an early interpreter. So that's the Middle Ages. Obviously, after the Middle Ages, we have the period of the Reformation. That would be the 16th century or the 1500s. And a little bit beyond, from about 1500 to 1650. And the Reformation, in terms of hermeneutics, it was first and foremost a hermeneutical Reformation. They took the literalists of the Middle Ages and expanded upon it and brought people back to the scriptures. So there was a a new interest in the Greek and Hebrew texts during this early period. People like Erasmus published the first edition of the Greek New Testament in 1516. And others uh, published Hebrew grammars and an interest in learning the Hebrew text, the Old Testament. Uh, This preceded the Reformation. And then uh, Luther came along studying some of these. Luther dating uh, from... 1483 to 1546. So the Reformers, we have a hermeneutical Reformation, and then we have Luther, who says, Allegories are empty speculations, and as it were, the scum of Holy Scripture. So he didn't think much of allegory, as you can tell there. In fact, he also said, Origins, allegories are worth not or are not worth so much dirt. <laughs> kind of an interesting quote. He says, allegories are awkward, absurd, inventive, obsolete, loose rags. So you can see that he had a low view of allegorical interpretation. He also said, when I was a monk... I was an expert in allegories. I allegorized everything, but after lecturing on the Epistle of Romans, I came to have knowledge of Christ. For therein I saw that Christ is no allegory, and I learned to know what Christ is. So he abandons allegorization, and you know the rest of the story. But it started with hermeneutics. So hermeneutics was very, very important. 
We also have John Calvin. He's also one of the most famous and important reformer. He was basically an interpreter of scripture. He was an exegete of of scripture. In fact, he was more of an exegete than he was a theologian. His theology stemmed from his exegesis. That's the way it should be. He he interpreted grammatically and historically as we would. He applied, in fact, we owe Calvin and some of the other reformers uh, a debt. Uh, Our hermeneutic basically comes from the Reformation. So that's where the principles that we've developed not only were revived, but were expanded in the years after the Reformation as well. So Melanchthon, Zwingli, Bollinger, Tyndale, these are all reformers, and most of these were also writers and interpreters of of, of Scripture, both Old and New Testament. Now, there was a counter-reformation because of the impact of the Protestant Reformation. And uh, they looked at the scriptures as well, but obviously they sided on the side of tradition, and they established some of their doctrines at the Council of Trent, and that was during 1545 through 1563. They saw the Bible as a supreme authority, but it was not the only supreme authority. They brought traditions alongside of Scripture. So that's the period of the Reformation. It's a hermeneutical Reformation. We have a Catholic counter-reformation that settled in on tradition. Obviously, shortly after the Reformation, we have the post-Reformation, the last half of the 17th century through the 18th century. And we have a variety of views. Obviously, the Roman Catholic views persisted and the work of the reformers persisted, and now you begin to see deviations from each of those as well. Calvinism spread, Westminster Confession was written, and we also have reactions to Calvinism. More work is done in the post-Reformation period in the area of the text, textual criticism. Lots of work in terms of word studies or linguistic studies. Lots of historical studies were done in this post-Reformation period. But also what arose, you've heard of the Enlightenment and rationalism. This also came about in this period of time. And rationalism had an impact on the the church during the post-Reformation period. Rationalism, where the human intellect is capable of deciding what is true, what is false, what is right, what is wrong. And we have a a departure from revelation, a departure basically from the Reformation. We have the rise of empiricism. And by the way, the 
early rise of the modern scientific era precedes rationalism, but rationalism has, has its effect also on science as well. Alongside of that, we have pietism during this period of time, where creeds were developed and the church became more dogmatic, more reliance on creeds rather than interpretation. And we also have the, the later reformers like John Wesley during this period of time that came out of pietism and brought about spiritual revivals as well. So the development of creeds came about during this period of time. Some of the literalists of the post-Reformation period, we have Francis Turretin, and we have the Anabaptists during this period of time. They interpreted scripture literally, saw the Bible as the sole authority. In fact, they went against, very strongly against the Catholic traditionalists. We have other textual critics during this period of time. Ben, uh, John Bengel, Johann Wettstein, who are well known for their textual criticism. But we also, on the other hand, we have the rationalists. This is where Thomas Hobbes, philosopher, started to, to write, influencing the church. Descartes writes during this time. Spinoza. John Locke, Berkeley, Hume, and eventually Kant towards the end of the period. And then you also have the reactions to Calvinism. You have Arminianism starting up in this period of time. These are all hermeneutical issues. Different approaches to interpreting scripture during the post-Reformation period. So, literalism survives and grows, but you have the rise of rationalists, the influence of pietists, and the establishment of creeds. So, you have somewhat of a fragmentation, not only of the church, but in terms of Bible interpretation as well. And that brings us to the last period, the which is called the modern period, beginning in the 19th century, all the way to our time frame. And I think you probably are more familiar with this period of time than perhaps the earlier interpretive periods of time. So during the 19th century, subjectivism, this is the product of rationalism that began before this. And the rise of liberalism, full-blown liberalism. And in the 19th century, we have a fracturing of the church, a departure, an expansion. We also have a positive expansion of missions. But on the other hand, in terms of hermeneutics, you have a decline in terms of hermeneutics. So, subjectivism, influenced Bible interpretation, where you're not seeking the author's willed intention, but you're 
using more rationalism to interpret scripture. Formalism, creedalism are now dictating how you interpret scripture. Historical criticism arose during this period of time. There are some good elements about it. In other words, a devotion back to the historical background of the books of the Bible. But in large measure, it was also critical in that it was uh, destructive. Uh, It rejected in some measure inspiration and in some way saw the Bible just like any other book composed by writers. In fact, it's in this 19th century period of time where, uh, for example, Wellhausen and uh, others took uh, a radical approach to interpreting particularly Genesis, but then it progressed through the Pentateuch and then all of the Bible. The documentary hypotheses is a product of this historical criticism period of time. And full-blown liberalism came about. But on the other hand, there were some good exegetes. So we have some good commentaries, exegetical commentaries, very conservative, that came about in the 19th century that uh, we still look to today. And many of them rejected rationalism, rejected liberalism, and they produced very good exegetical commentaries. Looking at history, the historical background, uh, applying the grammatical, historical, contextual approach. So we have commentators like Kyle and Dalich that wrote during this period of time, H.A.W. Mayer, J.P. Lang, Godet, Alford, Ellicott, Lightfoot, Westcott, uh, you have Westcott Hort, they did work on the text, Charles Hodge, J.A. Alexander, A.W. Barnes, R.C. Trench, all of these are during this 19th century period of time. And then in the 20th century, we have a further solidifying of all of these others, liberalism, totally expanding, the fracturing of the church in all of these areas. Roman Catholicism persists, obviously. Form criticism, different ways of approaching the scripture. This arose during the 20th century. Commentaries became more theological, less exegetical. There were still some exegetical commentaries, but there's the others that are coming along as well. Fundamentalism. A react, which is a reaction to liberalism, a devotion to sound Bible study and a emphasis on inspiration and inerrancy, renewed interest in not only orthodox theology, biblical theology, but primarily a literal, literal, literal approach to, to scripture. And that brings us to today where you you can find just about anything. But in general, we see more of a drift away from the literal approach where we are a small minority. So you have the Jewish period, the patristic that 
parallels the Jewish period. You have the Middle Ages. You have a short Reformation. You have a post-Reformation period on our timeline. And then you have the modern period. And our time is just about right to take a break. So why don't we take a break? Any questions, quick questions before we take a little bit of a break here? Hey, Ray, where does Schofield fit in in that chart? Uh, he would be modern, obviously, late modern, 20, 20th century. Yeah, he'd be one of the fundamentalists that I mentioned. During the 20th okay, century. Yep. Any other questions? Uh, yeah, where did the uh, modern creation movement, where does that fit into all of this? Uh, that would be also 20th century. Modern creationist movement came with the Genesis Flood written by Morris and Whitcomb, Henry Morris, John Whitcomb. And they published their book, I think, mid-1950s. Either that or early, I'd have to look at the copyright. Could be early, uh, I think it was mid-1950s. No later than uh, early 60s. Uh, pretty sure, like, mid-50s. And from that, um, it took a little while to get going, but it's picked up full steam within 20 years of the writing of the Genesis Flood. Any other questions? Well, I have one more about the paper. Okay. Uh, what What are you looking for in terms of commentary interspersed within the outline? Are you looking for paragraphs or just sentences, bullet points? Uh, either one will do. Um, you should have at least some paragraph discussions. But you can have like lists of things that you can bullet point. In other words, you can say something like, um, you know, I support this view. I, I see the two possibilities of two things here. I support this view for these three reasons and then bullet point one, two, three. You can do that. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, it's not a formal, uh, I want it to be useful. In other words, not that a formal paper is not useful, but uh, I don't want you to spend all your time trying to have it meet a formal paper format. I want you to spend more of your time basically interpreting the text and trying to write down the conclusions you came to. So I'm a little, I'm a little loose on the, the way that you present it, as long as it's understandable. Okay, let's take a break. During the break, Barb uh, looked up the date of writing of the Genesis Flood, and it's got a copyright of 61. So, it came out early 60s, so that'd be the beginning of the creationist movement. Well, last hour, or hour and a half, I guess, we were talking about church history, particularly history of interpretation, or the history of 
attempts to understand the meaning of a text, and I've hinted at different approaches without defining them because they arose during those periods of time. For example, the allegorical approach. Uh, let's take a look at it in more detail to see what we mean by that, even though we've talked a little bit about it, and I think you probably have a little bit of a idea what the allegorical approach is all about. So we will begin, and I'll be following the outline sheet that I sent you yesterday, obviously, as we did on the the history of hermeneutics. We'll begin with the allegorical approach, and Bernard Graham gives probably one of the best descriptions, if not definition, of the allegorical approach. And it is that behind the obvious and normal, or we would say literal meaning, is the real meaning of a passage. So it is by far the counterpart, you might say, or the antithesis, maybe even a better word, the antithesis of what we have been developing throughout this course, where we're emphasizing that normal or literal or what we've been describing, the grammatical, historical, contextual approach. And we've been warning about trying to find other meanings or different meanings. In fact, we are saying that that literal meaning is the meaning and there is one meaning. Not many meanings and not hidden meanings or meanings beneath the surface as the allegorical method uh, indicates. So, allegory or allegorical comes from a Greek word that actually occurs in the New Testament. In fact, Paul uses this in Galatians chapter 4. Allegoreo. Now, in this case, I've been warning about um, the use of etymology. Does somebody still have your microphone on? I've been warning about etymology, but here's a, perhaps an example where it might be useful. Alos in Greek is other. In fact, there are two words for other, heteros and alos. This is one of them. And agoruen, to speak, participial form. So it's just the idea of an allegory is to speak in an, another than the plain or ordinary or usual way of speaking. So we could uh, define allegory as to speak in a way other than what is meant, which goes totally contrary to what we have been talking about. So that's why we can describe it as the antithesis. So allegory is seeking meaning below the surface that's not evident, that's not clear, but the allegorist would say is there. In other words, it's part of the communication. Now, when we speak of allegory, 
We're not saying that all allegory is evil or all allegory is is wrong. There is such a thing or such a literary genre, we might say, as allegory. I mean, it's a legitimate literary form. It's a legitimate allegory or uh, not allegory, a legitimate genre. The question is... Not whether allegory in itself is right or wrong, but the issue is, should we apply it to scripture? Is scripture intended to be an allegory? And our answer is an emphatic no. An example of allegory that is legitimate is the well-known Christian book, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan. Uh, it's a very effective literary form, but Obviously, Bunyan intends his book to be interpreted allegorically. So it's a legitimate way of communicating. It's a legitimate genre, a legitimate literary form. But what we are saying is the Bible does not claim to be an allegory in any of its places, New Testament or Old Testament. The closest would be that Galatians 4 passage. And even it may not qualify as pure allegory, even though that's the word that Paul uses there. Uh, The way way he's using it could be different than what we normally think of as strictly allegory. So, it's not that we're denying the existence of such a literary form or we're categorizing all allegory as evil, what we are just saying is that's not what the Bible was intended. So we stick to what the intent of Scripture uh, was when it was originally written and how that original author or audience would have understood that writing. And the original audience did not take the Bible in any place that we know of uh, as an allegory. I gave you the example where you seek different meanings. And it was very prominent in the Middle Ages. I used the example of Jerusalem where you have the literal city. That's the surface meaning. So if the literal city is referenced in a passage in the Old Testament or even the New Testament. That's fine. That's just the surface meaning. Now, because you have scripture and you have an omniscient and um, infinite God, you have the potential. In fact, this is the justification and perhaps the well-meaning origin of allegory was if we have a God that is infinite, then why would we restrict his communication to such a narrow way of uh, interpreting it? In other words, the reasoning is we would expect that an infinite God would have more than one meaning in writing a text to, to mankind. Now, We argue against that, but that's the rationale that would be used. So you look for other meanings, 
the allegorical meaning, maybe a reference to the church. So you're reading an Old Testament passage, Jerusalem comes up. So it's talking about Jerusalem. So now you spiritualize not only the, the city that is being discussed, but some of the circumstances related to what's going on at that time frame in that city. Somehow you can draw out meaning that relates to the church. And in the Middle Ages, as I gave you that example, the tropological meaning, you can narrow it closer to home. And when it refers to Jerusalem, it's dealing with the innermost part of the nation of Israel, the center of Israel, and the center of the human person is his soul. So there's probably some meaning relating to mankind himself. And then there's an eschatological meaning, or it's given another name as well. Uh, it also looks ahead to a heavenly city, the New Jerusalem uh, of Revelation 22. You can gain insight even from an Old Testament passage. So that's kind of an example, and it's used in other ways, as in other ways that we could illustrate it, but this is kind of a vivid way of kind of conveying it. So that's the allegorical method. So behind the obvious and normal meaning is the real meaning of a passage. So the weaknesses of this approach and by the way, before I get into the weaknesses, I should say there's probably no one that uses the allegorical method entirely in every passage or exclusively. There is always, and there has been historically, there has always been kind of a mixture of this approach with a more literal approach. And the allegorical approach does not deny the literal, but it goes beyond it, or attempts to go beyond it. So when we describe interpreters like Origen, and we call them an, an allegorist, that doesn't mean that everything that he wrote or every passage that he interpreted, he saw that passage as allegorical. But what he did do is he imposed this allegorical approach to some areas, and in some areas more so than in other areas. So even today, there are people that still utilize a, a less literal approach and a more allegorical approach. And today, no one that I know of is an entirely allegorical interpreter. But there are many who do incorporate some allegorization, and that's what we need to be aware of. And particularly when we come to prophetic material, and since we mentioned the Genesis flood, and we're referring to creation science, uh, it's very popular to take the early chapters of Genesis in a more allegorical way. Uh, rather than a literal approach, the way that we we approach Scripture. So what we're arguing for is consistency and a consistent grammatical, historical, contextual approach. 
but also acknowledging that there's no allegorist that interprets every passage allegorically, but he does intermix it with a literal hermeneutic. Well, some of the weaknesses, even on a limited basis, it's too subjective and too arbitrary. The exegete can come up with virtually any meaning that his imagination can conjure up. And if you read commentaries that are interpreting a passage allegorically, if you read a commentary on that particular passage from different allegorists, you find out that they seldom agree because uh, they're looking at it subjectively and coming up with an allegorical interpretation that someone else may differ in terms of that deeper, that deeper meaning. So it's too subjective. It lacks that important element that we developed. We talked about, remember in the scientific method, the third stage of testing. It doesn't have that subjective or substantiation stage. Uh, it is just dependent on the imagination of the interpreter. <clears throat> A second weakness is rather than elucidating the biblical text, it tends to obscure the meaning because you're searching for these deeper meanings that are not there. When the plain meaning is there, you're not emphasizing it because you're spending all your time looking for these deeper meanings, so it tends to obscure the true meaning or the real meaning or the intended meaning of the original author because it's focusing your attention away from the biblical passage rather than on the literal meaning of the text. And we would say the intended meaning of the original author. Thirdly, it has a tendency to diminish the historical aspect or the historical sense of the passage. So it denies that fundamental principle, or if not denies it, at least diminishes that historical principle. The, the fact that a historical context contributes to the meaning of a text. And it at least minimizes that historical aspect. So it violates several very fundamental hermeneutical principles that we believe are the more biblical and more time-tested hermeneutical principles. Fourthly, it also, here's another principle it violates, it overlooks the progress of revelation principle. So it sees, for example, in the example I gave you, if you find Jerusalem, then you have to find some relationship to the church. And the church doesn't occur if you're studying an Old Testament passage. The church is not in the Old Testament. The church does not appear until Christ establishes it after the day of Pentecost. And that's in the progress of Revelation. In fact, it's called a mystery because it's not revealed until we come to the New Testament. So it diminishes or overlooks or even violates the progress of Revelation principle. And, as I mentioned, there's no way to verify what comes out of an imagination. You can't compare it to another exegete, because the exegetes all differ. 
there might be some agreement on some minor points or maybe major points, but there's no way of validating what you can come up with by the use of your imaginations too too subjective to do that. It also violates the clarity of scripture principle in that uh, God intends his word to be understood and the allegorical approach almost implies that unless you are spiritual, you're not going to see these spiritual depths of a passage. And the more spiritual, supposedly, you are, the more you're going to be able to come up with these deeper meanings. But the clarity of Scripture principle basically tells us that God intended that the text reveal what he meant, and it's only the literal approach that gives us that. So those are some of the major weaknesses, and there's few other minor ones, but for the sake of time, let's move on to the next approach. First of all, is everyone kind of clear on that? This is very common in our culture, very common in the church, and sometimes even sneaks in to Bible churches, Bible teachers, in some difficult passages, they may not go full bore into allegorizing, but they tend to, kind of a counterpart to this is spiritualizing a passage. In other words, finding a more spiritualized meaning rather than the plain, uh, literal, you might say, or the apparent meaning of a text. Uh, it, it is similar to allegorization has some slight differences, but it's basically the same approach. Looking for a meaning that's not in the text itself. Spiritualizing or allegorizing a text. Is that pretty clear? Clear. Clear. Yep, clear. I assume uh, replacement theology uses the allegory type approach to give uh, yes. the church the meaning for the kingdom and so forth. Yes. yes. You see it real common in eschatology, as I mentioned. In fact, amillennialism allegorizes or spiritualizes prophetic texts. They don't take them literally. They, they read a new meaning. In fact, what dictates is their theology dictates their interpretation. So you're inserting a meaning, and that's what allegory does. It's looking for meanings that are not there and inserting them into the biblical text. So, yes. Postmillennialism also does the same thing. It's only, in fact, I mentioned in our introduction, it's only the grammatical, historical, contextual method. And as, as a result of that, you come up with premillennialism. It pops up as a result of a literal approach. You have to impose an allegorical or a spiritualizing of a biblical text to come up with an amillennialism. Okay? 
So the second major area that you will encounter, you, you'll encounter all allegorism. Uh, you'll even sometimes encounter it in Bible churches. Not full-blown, but in terms of some particular passages. By the way, the old earth interpreters as well spiritualized the early chapters of Genesis, at least some some of the passages. So it's a form of the allegorical approach. Liberalism, or sometimes called rationalistic interpretation. The key word here, or phrase, is that Reason overshadows revelation, and what they mean by that is that if a biblical passage doesn't kind of fit reasonableness or rational thought, uh, then you take a second look at the passage and you find an understanding of it that can explain it apart from uh, perhaps a Another explanation. So the bottom line on liberal theology, it comes from this liberal approach that uh, the bottom line, it denies in large measure the, the supernatural. And if you, if you deny the supernatural and try to come up with naturalistic explanation, in fact, this approach tries to give the impression that it uses science to interpret the scriptures, but uh, I hope we refuted that because it's a grammatical, historical, contextual method that actually is the scientific method. So the essence of it is that uh, whatever is not in harmony with the intellect or educated man must be rejected and The underlying thought of this, the presupposition that guides it, is that the Bible is not a supernatural book. It's just another human book composed by human authors. Now, we agree that it's composed by human authors, sinful men, human frailty, but we believe in an inspiration defined in such a way that God superintends that writing such that what he intends, utilizing frail human instruments, he's able to accomplish. So, the rationalistic view, the presupposition underlying it is, we're looking at a human book. So, this is where liberalism comes from. So, I'll call it a liberal approach. And here are some of the main points of it. Naturalism is prominent. In fact, naturalism is another presupposition that that forms the the approach. So a naturalistic approach. And you can automatically see where, for example, in dealing with creationism and science today, na- science today as a methodological naturalism imposed upon it in interpreting science, you disregard what scripture says because uh, you deny that it's a supernatural book. 
And if you impose naturalism on the, the scriptures, now you eliminate the supernatural. So, uh, the naturalism is, is prominent. So if you can't test it by science, then you have to come up with a different interpretation. If you can't explain it on a scientific method, then you have to seek a different understanding of the text. So, essentially, miracles are rejected under this approach. It uh, redefines inspiration. Inspiration isn't God superintending the human authors to produce his intended meaning, but it's redefined such that it has that idea of men were inspired in such a way to write, but they're still human, and what they wrote is not necessarily superintended. So our definition is rejected, and inspiration deals with that which is extraordinary or above the material order. We're dealing with certainly spiritual issues, but because of the naturalism that's imposed, it still denies miracles. So human insight or the inspiration is transferred to the Bible and its power to inspire religious experience. Not that the Bible itself is inspired, but it is able to inspire religious experience. Individuals that wrote were inspired to write. So that's the redefinition of inspiration. So it denies revelation. Instead of revelation, it's human insight into what they would call religious truth or the human discovery of religious truth. So inspiration is redefined. The supernatural is redefined. This becomes that which is extraordinary or above the material order. Like prayer, or ethics, or immortality. So they would see these in the Bible, so that's the supernatural. It's not that God intervenes in history, but issues of ethics, morality, or, or, uh, yeah, morality and mortality. Rejecting miracles as only mythological or folklore. And we'll see that this pops up in some of the other related hermeneutical approaches. But it starts with the liberal. The concept of the evolution of religion is imposed on the Bible, especially upon Israel they would see a development of monotheism, a development of religious ideas. Uh, it would see even the Old Testament as primitive in its sacrificial system. But now religion has moved away from that in Christianity. So there's, a, there's an evolution of religion. The concept of evolution is applied to the development of religion, and even the development of history. And in some cases, it has to rearrange material to fit that presupposition. 
So lots of humanistic influences. Philosophy has an influence. The writings of Immanuel Kant, Hegel. And by the way, Kant interpreted scripture, but he was more of a moral interpreter. But he was a philosopher, if you remember. So some of his philosophy is imposed on interpretation of of scripture. Just kind of a cartoon. Bring this home. The church of the busy shepherd. The secular church. Gets involved in social involvement. Political engagement. Cultural activities. It says no religion. And I guess we would say no power of the Holy Spirit. So those are the two prominent, and I run into liberals all the time, uh, well-meaning people that are still part of many denominations that have essentially abandoned the Word of God. In fact, a lot of people that come to Bible churches come out of a liberal background, and as you minister to them as they grow, you will have to in some ways, counter some of those thoughts that may even persist. They may have to be given a new understanding of some doctrines. But that's liberal interpretation. I don't want to spend a lot of time on these because I do want to get to special hermeneutics, but there are some other systems or other approaches Some of these have sprung from these others that we've just talked about, these first two. In fact, these first ones have come directly from uh, liberal interpretation. So they have some of the same presuppositions, some of the same assumptions, and some of the same approaches. But in the case of, for example, neo-orthodoxy, they saw that liberalism had gone too far. So it's called neo-orthodox because it's kind of a combination of some orthodox interpretation along with the liberal approach. The main promoter or the originator of this came from Karl Barth, 1800s to middle of the 1900s. And sometimes it's called Bardianism. So goes by the name of Neo-Orthodox or Bartianism, named after Karl Barth, where he saw Revelation differently. He redefined Revelation. Revelation isn't what God gave to the biblical authors, but Revelation is when and only when God speaks, and only God can speak for God. That comes right out of one of his writings. But what he means by that is the text itself is not revelation. God will use the biblical text, and as you read it, God can reveal himself or reveal something about himself, reveal his presence and his presence in my consciousness. That's what he means by revelation. So the Bible is a witness or a record to revelation. Not the revelation itself. Very key there. And obviously that is not what we would agree with. So, you have a tendency to 
wander a little bit in the direction of allegory in that you look beyond the words for the word, Karl Barth would say. And as a result, he denies biblical infallibility because there's a certain degree of subjectivity here. He denies inerrancy. He denies inspiration. So neo-orthodoxy denies some of the fundamental assumptions of our grammatical, historical, contextual approach. So it was a reaction to liberalism with a background of orthodoxy and kind of mix the two, but the mixing doesn't reach the standard of what we would look for in Bible interpretation. So it began with Bart. Uh, I don't know if there are any neo-orthodox anymore. I haven't heard, or writers anymore. Seems to have passed by the wayside. But you might come across some commentaries and books, not only by Karl Barth, but those that followed after him. What did follow was another writer, another theologian. Oh, I was going to, I already summarized all this. Between liberal and orthodoxy, revelation when God speaks. Bible is a witness to revelation. Inspiration and inerrancy is denied. Okay, another reaction, you might say, to liberalism is what's called the new hermeneutic and a new scholar or thinker, you might say, Boltmann. He's the originator of it. His dates are 1888 to 1976, kind of spanning this almost the same time frame. Bart was 1886 to 68, so they both lived kind of same time frame. But the writings of Boltmann concerning the new hermeneutic actually comes after Bart. So Bart writes first, and Boltmann writes secondly. Now he goes full bore, at least more so than liberalism, into what he would describe as science. He puts a high priority on science. But then again, I see a difference between the way modern science is practiced and where science came from, I think science came from that biblical base that we talked about, but science has drifted to methodological material or naturalistic, methodological naturalism, which naturalism is a worldview at least, if not a religion in itself. And that approach is what we're talking about here. When we speak of science, we're talking about science in its more modern form, not in its more early or more, what I would say, biblical form, based on a search for God's truth, no matter where you find it, whether it be in the natural realm or as God reveals himself in a special way, in special revelation. So, he says, it's scientific, 
So to ask a person to believe against science or history is to ask one to sacrifice his intellect. So it's very similar to neo-orthodoxy. But it has some, some, some differences. Emphasizes the historical setting more than the exegesis. So it goes overboard in dealing with historical setting. And here's where a lot of good work is done, but on the other hand, the full emphasis of exegesis is, is neglected. So historical concepts are emphasized. The text is interpreted more in light of the historical setting, and it uses form criticism which is a whole area in itself, uh, to interpret the biblical text. It uses what they describe as a mythological principle. And in that they would say that the first century church expressed its faith in mythological terms. This is where it denies miracles. So when you read the biblical text you take into account that the early believers believed in miracles and at least the writers, they would record a miraculous event, but that goes against science. So what you need to do is to evaluate it and demythologize that text. So there's this creation of the new hermeneutic called the demythological principle. And if the early church used myth, then what you try to find is what does this myth say and what is behind it? There must have been something that created this myth, so you search what that might be. So you try to recover the original incident or the original situation, and once you grasp that, now you can understand the passage but recognizing that the miracle did not take place. So it emphasizes the religious experience that the early church went uh, went into, um, and basically it's existentialism at work in interpreting scripture. So you remove those mythological elements like miracles. In fact, this hermeneutic actually denies even the resurrection of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ. So Christ rose, but it was a spiritual resurrection, not a bodily resurrection. So those are some of the main elements of the new hermeneutic. There's a revelational principle as well. Uh, revelation is an event, an encounter with God. Not what God spoke to the original authors. So that's the new hermeneutic. There's a devotional approach to scripture that is common. Sometimes it can be uh, mystical. It is certainly subjective. The emphasis of this approach is, is not exegesis. In other words, you don't get involved in the historical background, the, the historical issues of a passage. 
You don't get so involved in the grammar. You just look for things that you can apply. That's why it's called devotional. Now, we would want to apply the same thing in the applicational stage. In other words, how do I respond to this and how, do, how does this passage impact me? But the devotional approach excludes the interpretation phase, the observation interpretation phase, and jumps to the applicational stage. Uh, the weakness is obviously the subjective aspect of it, and there's no controls on it, so there's no test, no substantiation that you do. It's it's just whatever strikes the, the reader. There tends to be a, a tendency towards allegorization and spiritualization as well, which is a distortion of the word. And some people use it as a substitute for exegesis. Another approach called dogmatic, or another way of describing it, would be traditional interpretation. This was the interpretation of the Catholic Church, where the Church sets forth the interpretation of a passage. You're not encouraged to study the Bible for yourself. The Church has done it. You're not qualified. You don't have a degree. Uh, The Church leaders, they know what they're doing. So when they make a pronouncement concerning a meaning of a text, that's the meaning of the text. They've written it down, so it goes back to some of the early writers, the church fathers, popes, etc. That's a dogmatic or traditional approach. There's even a hermeneutic of the cults. The hermeneutic of the cults. And particularly the... uh, the uh, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of the, the more Christianized cults I guess you'd say the ones that are kind of counterfeit Christian uh, movements I guess you could say the bottom line of the cults is you have a theology of the founder that oftentimes is not only convoluted sometimes even contradictory, sometimes emphasizing a certain area and certainly a distorted theology, but it's the theology of the founder and that theology now is superimposed on the scriptures. So the interpretation of any given passage is viewed through that filter of the theology of the founder. So that's at the heart of the hermeneutic of the cults. And if we had more time, we could talk about other areas. But for now, I'd like to spend the rest of our time getting us going into the area of hermeneutics. I kind of touched on it last time. And I'd like to expand on it a little bit further. So let me switch slides here. Any questions on that while I'm rearranging things here? Kind of a quick overview of other hermeneutical approaches.
Just another reminder, we talked about this at the end of our class last week. We've been dealing with hermeneutics. We've been applying general principles. And what I've emphasized there is the grammatical, historical, contextual approach encourages us to maintain a consistent hermeneutic, a consistent grammatical, historical, contextual, regardless of the passage. And I've been stressing from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, from the beginning to the end of the Bible, we apply these general principles. So these principles apply to any given passage. But there are also, we acknowledge there are different kinds of literature within Scripture. In fact, we have many different types of literature. Each of those kinds of literature or genres have their own peculiarities, their own, in some cases, even principles. So we need to take a look at them, and we call that whole area special hermeneutics. Now, it includes some other areas as well, but one of the main things that it deals with are these special genres in Scripture. So the features or the characteristics or even the principles that we develop in these particular genres are above the general principles, not in place of. So when we talk about poetry or we talk about prophecy, we'll apply the general principles, just like we would any passage, narrative or epistolary or whatever. We apply all the general principles and we try to maintain a consistent hermeneutic. But now, if we are in a a poetic passage, Now we take into account the special or particular characteristics of poetic literature above and beyond the general principles. That's special hermeneutics. And in our exegesis, we'll apply both, depending on the genre that we are exegeting. So we'll apply all the general principles consistently, and then we add the particular characteristics of whatever genre that we're exegeting. And then we will teach that in a class on Wednesday night or whatever. So, special hermeneutics. And last time I gave you an overview of the areas that we'll cover. We'll talk about narrative. We'll talk about poetry. We'll look at wisdom literature, which is a subdivision of the Uh, poetic literature, it's a specialized genre within a genre. It's still poetic, but now it's got other characteristics that we classify as wisdom. We have prophetic material as well, and similar to wisdom as a subset of poetry, we have a subset of prophecy, we call that typology. So we need to talk about typology. It's a form of prophecy. And we want to give adequate devotion to epistolary literature because we'll spend most of our 
time exegeting probably the epistles because they're applicable to the church and the church age and most of us will be ministering in churches. So we want to look at what are the special characteristics of the letters of the New Testament, the epistles, a specialized genre called parables, not as important as all the others so far on the list, but they do occur. So I want to give you a little teaching or background on the special characteristics of parables, common in the life of Christ, but also occur in the Old Testament. Now, number eight is not a genre, but it does include interpretive issues. And there's some special things that go on when the New Testament uses the Old Testament that we need to take into account. And some of these uh, are a little sometimes controversial, and some of them are not clear. So we want to take a look at how does the New Testament use the Old Testament, and particularly prophetic passages. How does the New Testament interpret prophetic passages? Uh, what does it mean when it refers to a passage being fulfilled, for example? Uh, some of those issues fall into this category. And if we have time, I'll look at some other ones. One of the areas that we'll look at are legal material, which is a genre in itself. And there's some other areas, depending on how well we manage the time. I'm confident we'll get through at least eight and probably touch on that nine area of special hermeneutics. But let's, uh, we won't complete this, but let's get a start on that first genre or literary form known as narrative, narrative material. I mentioned last time that is very common in scripture. In fact, we would even say that one of the main reasons it's so important, narrative material is kind of the underlying foundation of all of scripture. All of the other literary form that occur in scripture are found within or at least founded on a history or a story that all of the Bible develops. So you could call it the main supporting framework of the rest of Scripture. So for that reason alone, uh, we want to study it. And we want to not only study it, but emphasize it and understand that when we're dealing with narrative, we're dealing with a particular kind of literature that has particular characteristics. Characteristics that need to be taken into account when we interpret those passages. So that's one of the reasons. I also mentioned last time that uh, this also is the most common genre of all of the Bible. The Old Testament, about 40% of it is narrative. So nearly half of the Old Testament is narrative. And the Old Testament, 75% of the Old Testament, or or 75% of the Bible is the Old Testament. So uh, that 
imposes a large percentage on the whole Bible itself. And for the New Testament, about 46% of the New Testament. So somewhere between about 43% of the whole Bible is narrative in terms of literary form. So that's one of the reasons why it's important as well is because it's very prevalent throughout the Bible. The third reason, kind of related to the first, it's not only the foundation, but it does give us something of a greater story, a what we might describe a meta-narrative. And if you trace from the beginning, Genesis, all the way to the book of Revelation, there is a story that is told. There's a plan. There is a direction that God is taking all of the universe. We could call this a meta-narrative or a large narrative. Some people describe it as his story. And you can see the play on words here. In other words, history is his story. If you remove one letter there, you have history. And that's what the Bible is. It's the story of what God is doing in the universe. Man plays a huge part. So man is a major character in world history. But behind world history also is God himself. So let's talk about the essence of narrative. And and also in that, we'll take a look at this view of history, this big view of history and this big view of the Bible and itself as a greater story. What is narrative? Well, narrative is the presentation of history or events in story form. That's kind of a simple Description, if not definition, of narrative. Obviously, it's not limited to the Bible. We write narrative literature. In fact, all historical works are narrative. But narrative is not limited to historical works. There is a broader sense of narrative. You can tell a story. But when we speak of the Bible, we're talking about history, so that's why I define it as the presentation of history or events in story form. But you could describe a novel as a narrative as well. It's telling a story. That's the broader usage. Now, there are no novels or many novels within the Bible, so it's presentation of history. So when we speak of the Bible, we are limiting it to historical narrative. So one writer has said, the Bible, on the other hand, contains what we often hear called God's story, a story that is utterly true, crucially important, and often complex. It is a magnificent story, grander than the greatest epic richer in plot and more magnificent in its characters and descriptions than any humanly composed story could ever be. 
So we do have a grand and a overarching story, and uh, the Bible presents that. And within it, that story is told using different literary forms, different genres, and there are different aspects woven within that story. So it teaches by giving the reader the sense of being there. That's narrative in general. That's even narrative in relationship to a a novel. A novel will try to put you into the story, get you to put yourself into the story and experience what he's trying to convey through the characters and the experiences they go through and the storyline. You want to sense being there so it appeals to our experience and even our imagination. So a story will develop a little bit of the setting so we understand the circumstances of the events surrounding that story. So a key you can see immediately, uh, one of the keys to interpreting narrative is what you want to do is imagine yourself as part of the story. As an observer, not a participant, but you're there watching as the scenes unfold, as the characters develop, and as they experience things, think about what it's like to be there and what would it be like experiencing the same things as those in the story. So when you interpret historical narrative, put yourself back into that time frame, that culture, that historical event, and imagine what's going on and you'll have a better sense as to what's being communicated by the writer or the author of that story. So there are stories within this broader story. In fact, you could say that within this broad narrative of a history, and I call it a history from eternity to eternity. In fact, I have a talk that summarizes that whole story. I've mentioned it to to you before. I call it uh, world history is Jewish from eternity to eternity. So it takes into account not only past events, not only church age events, but even beyond the church age into the future. And the Bible tells a future story as well. It tells us how everything's going to end. It tells us where history is headed. So it's an all-comprehensive, all-encompassing uh, and comprehensive history, broader than any secular history that you could find uh, that man produces. So that's something of the essence of it. Let's take a quick look at historical narrative. And let me give you some background on kind of the nature of history itself and then talk a little bit about the narrative that we have in in Scripture. There are two branches of science. One of them we would describe as observational science. 
science dealing with things that you can observe here and now, make observations now, form a hypothesis, you can f- formulate a test. So observational science deals with observations in the present. Now you could also study the past. In fact, you can study history and view it uh, scientifically. So there is the study of past events as well. We call that history. And if you're dealing with just strictly science, we call that historical science. But it can be broader than just simply a scientific endeavor. It can deal with, obviously, personalities and events as well. Not just events. Not just things that you can study scientifically. So the nature of history is... You can't go back and relive, but you can study in present time, and this is the distinction between observational science and historical science, you can observe the traces of the past. Now, when we're dealing with historical records, those traces of the past are writings primarily. If you're dealing with science and, for example, studying the geological record, That geological record is a trace or a series of traces of past events or possibly a composite one event. So when we're talking about historical narrative, we're going to try to reconstruct what happened in the past by studying the traces. This is just the nature of history overall. And we're talking about the Bible as well, including the Bible here. The Bible is a set of traces of the past because it's a written record. Now, it's different from a secular history in that we believe that it has an important component that we call revelation. So when we study historical narrative, We look at the data, the traces that are left by an event, but all historical events or historical facts include that data plus interpretation. So it's not the Bible that you interpret, but when you're dealing with the past, and you're reading a book, you're reading an interpretation of the author or a set of authors who have evaluated whatever data is available to investigate because they can't go back to reconstruct the event. So if they have court records or eyewitness accounts or even early historical accounts, they evaluate all of that data interpret it, and then they come up with an interpretation and they give you a history of Abraham Lincoln or whatever. The Bible does the same thing. The Bible, we have data, but it's the data is revelation in this case, and in some cases it includes eyewitness accounts. and The book of Acts, for example, many of the details in it. But we also have interpretation in that in this case the Bible we have a divine interpreter we have divine interpretation of the events and that is what's recorded 
So we see historical narrative of scripture as having a unique element, slightly different from any historical work. So we're talking about historical narrative. All history, biblical, secular, world history, Chinese history, U.S. history, is selective. So also is biblical narrative. It's selective. But in this case, again, we have that that is selected by the Holy Spirit, selected by what God included, because we believe as a presupposition in inspiration. So historical narrative doesn't give us all the details. And this is especially evident in the early chapters of Genesis, where there's a lot there that we wish there were more detail. And we come up with a lot of questions. Large periods of time seem to be totally skipped over. We wish we had more information, events leading up to the Tower of Babel, for example. And even between the time frame of Babel and Abraham, a lot is left out. Uh, This is true of secular history. This is true of biblical history. But we trust in God wants us to ha- have certain things and those things he's recorded and the other things that he has not recorded he is reserved for us not to know. Now there's a complete philosophy of history that the Bible gives us. I've given you some of the elements of it just in the description of narrative. But uh we'll get to that in a moment. I'll give you that philosophy after I give you some other elements of narrative, I've already mentioned it's interpretive, but we trust in a divine interpreter. So we have a higher trust in biblical history than we do secular history. In fact, we put it as a priority to understand any secular history. And we can fit secular history within this interpretive framework of biblical history. And that's what I attempt to do in small measure, at least in that talk that I mentioned before. And as I've said, this is God's view of history. So he gives us what he deems important. And we trust that uh, what he has given us is adequate. So, The last thing I want to touch on is what is that view that God has given us? And then we'll pick up from there next week. But I think Paul, in addressing the scholars of his day, the scientists of his day at Athens, Acts chapter 17, Paul is confronting him, and he is confronting them with with two worldviews, If you study this whole interchange between Paul and the philosophers at Athens, you will see that he totally demolishes their worldview, and then he begins to give them an alternative worldview. And within that alternative worldview, he gives a complete philosophy of history, which is part of this biblical worldview. And... Some of the elements of here distinguish 
this philosophy of history from any secular philosophy of history. In fact, you'll have a hard time finding a philosophy of history in any secular history book. But Paul gives us a philosophy of history that we can derive from this passage in Acts chapter 17. He deals with other elements of a biblical worldview, but I think beginning in verse 26, he starts talking about history and and makes some uh, very profound comments about it. Now, he had already referred to in verse 24, already referred to creation, and then he mentions it again here, but he's speaking more generally in that verse 24 passage. God as creator of all things. Here he's speaking in terms of the creation of man. So history begins with mankind and actually begins before that begins with God. God making mankind. So we're talking about history begins with creation, which is very important. And you need to take into account revelation to understand creation. And you have to understand revelation to understand what God is doing in that creation. So a philosophy of history begins with creation or God as creator. And it says from one man. So it goes back to Adam, specific one man, not evolution. That's the secular part of a philosophy of history of the secularist. From one man, every nation of mankind. That's what history deals with. The nations of mankind and how they interacted and what became of them. The rise and fall of nations of mankind. We're still dealing with nations today. In fact, that's a big debate today. Trump's accused of saying that he's a nationalist. That's a biblical concept. I won't get into that, but... Every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. There's a purpose there to live. And there's going to be an expansion of that purpose in verse 27. So God has a plan and a purpose for for world history, you could even say. There's a sovereign plan. So it includes mankind. In fact, man is the heart of it to live on the face of the earth. And notice, having determined God, referring to he, capitalized up there, God having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. In other words, there's a flow to history that God has determined. He has determined the rise and fall of particular nations. The extent, their times, they have an appointed time, they last, they have an expiration date. But it's under a sovereign hand. And we might even say that not only is God creator and author of world history, but there is a plan. There is that meta-narrative that the scriptures present to us. This big story. And God reveals it in his word by way of revelation. We could draw an implication of that. This history is linear. There's a linear concept. It has a beginning, a start with God as creator. And as you work through, this plan works it out in time. And the Bible gives us the end. 
gives us the end concept. In broad strokes, we could describe it as his story, but it's a revelation of God himself. That's the focus of world history and biblical history is a revelation of God himself and what he's doing in that universe. All of these events will ultimately glorify God. That's the subject of this meta-narrative. Israel has a big part. And the story of the Old Testament, kind of a subset of the meta-narrative, is the whole story of Israel and a promise of Messiah. Actually, there's a fall and a promise of a Messiah that will eventually come. But that Messiah is rejected. And when that Messiah is rejected, that's the turning point of all of world history, and particularly in relationship to Israel. Messiah establishes a new entity. We call that the church. But eventually Messiah will return and he will establish a kingdom that will rule the world unlike any of the nations that precede. So there's kind of a on one slide the whole Bible and all of world history all in one little slide in its simplicity. And you can break down the rest of the story and see individual narratives. You have a creation narrative, major events. You have a fall that comes shortly after the creation. We don't have a time frame for it. And even within the fall, God promises that he's going to deal with the issue of sin. The rest of world history, God's going to deal with the problem of sin. And at the end of world history, he's going to have it resolved. We have a creation, we have a fall. One of the ways that God deals with it is through judgment. He separates out that that destroys that that he loves. And the first major judgment, actually after there's a judgment of the fall, but evident of a world judgment is the Genesis flood saying that God's going to deal with evil. It's a reminder, but it's also a story of salvation. So he brings judgment to separate that that he loves from that that is being, that is destroying what he loves. Then we have the flow of history where God's made some promises. Well, first of all, we have a scattering of the nations and the origin of the nations. And then God makes promises to Abraham. And I believe that the promises he made to Abraham set the parameters for all the rest of world history. And the outworking of those promises are going to eventuate in a people that come out of Egypt. There's a story that intervenes there. How did they get to Egypt, etc. That people will become a nation. Part of a nation requires that they have, oops, uh, that they enter the land. So there's intervening events here. And they become a nation, and that nation becomes a kingdom, but the kingdom collapse. You have cycles of sin. The result of that first sin, we have a return in preparation of Messiah. Messiah, we have an incarnation and a cluster of events, a death, a resurrection, obviously a rejection in between. We have a church age. And then we have a break in the timeline, and everything is prophetic. So these are some of the major events. 
we have a second coming or a return of the Messiah where he'll establish a kingdom where sin will be finally and totally be dealt with. And then we have an eternal state. That's the story of the Bible. So this philosophy of history he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the, all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and their boundaries and the, of their habitation. Verse 27, if we had more time, maybe I'll develop this next week. That, here's a purpose statement, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So our philosophy of history starts with God as creator, and he's the author of world history because he has a sovereign plan that he's working out. He's revealed that plan to us. It's linear in nature. It's heading in a direction. It's going to have a completion, a consummation. It's going to have an end. It involves time and geography, the appointed times. And it spoke of boundaries, so boundaries are important. No open borders, I guess. And it has a divine purpose, verse 27. And it deals with the relationship of man and God. Man may seek God. That's one of the major purposes of world history. Well, let's stop at that point. That kind of gives you a thumbnail sketch of narrative and this big narrative and why it is so important uh, from particularly a passage in the book of Acts that gives us a philosophy of history, a biblical philosophy of history of how God is working in the universe. So let's stop there. And Steve, why don't you close for us today and we'll... Take off. Okay. Father in heaven, we are so very grateful for the fact that you have recorded your special revelation to man in the Bible and preserved it over the centuries and have used men called by you to preserve the method by which your meaning can be reliably understood uh, by us centuries later after the recording of your special revelation. We ask that through the filling of the Holy Spirit that we would be able to internalize the lessons that we are learning, that we would apply them, that we would understand the history uh, and why it is so vitally important in understanding war. We thank you for Schaefer Seminary and for Dr. Ray and his patient teaching of us. We ask that you be with us in the coming week. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to run. Um, I'm assuming everything was clear, and we'll go from here and pick up next week. Have a good week. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Thank you.